0: We're going to ask you to uh, take God's Word in your hands and turn uh, to the book of Matthew this morning as we continue in our series that we've entitled Invisible War. Uh, It's a different kind of series uh, than we normally do, uh, but for the summer we've wanted to focus in on the subject matter, the topic of spiritual warfare and the invisible war that's going on that every Christian finds themselves a part of. And we've learned that uh, we're either winning in that battle or we're losing. There's no middle ground. There's no uh, place in between. And so we need to recognize a couple things that we've learned in this series. Number one, we've learned that uh, we need to be alert. We need to be aware of the war that's going on and, and be ready for the battle that uh, is no doubt uh, being waged around us. Then we need to know our adversaries. And we spent three weeks in the series looking at the different adversaries that we have in this battle. We talked about the devil and uh, the, the role that he plays as a, an enemy of all that is good and righteous in this world. Uh, seeking to uh, destroy and disparage the name of Christ and the ministry of Christ. We talked about the world and and the world's systems and the patterns of this world is another enemy that uh, uh, is far more subtle in many ways, uh, but wreaks havoc in the lives of Christians as well. And then we looked at the enemy of the flesh, uh, that enemy within, those cravings, those desires that seek to feed self and our desires and wants instead of the desires and wants uh, of God. And and, uh, then we turned from the adversaries to the allies. We talked about the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God that lives inside every believer and uh, gives us the uh, ability to say no to sin and worldly lusts and to say yes to holiness and and Christ-like living. And and today we come to the second of our allies uh, in this battle that we're facing. And it's one that I was surprised as I studied the subject matter of Spiritual warfare, as I looked to what other pastors had said, this was an area of omission. Uh, and it is the ally of the church. And only one of the books that I uh, got on the subject matter spoke to this ally or spoke about this ally, which is kind of amazing to me because in our passage this morning, Jesus is going to tell us he's going to build his church. And he says these words, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's a pretty amazing statement. It's a warfare statement saying that this church, this entity uh, of the redeemed believers, both um, the totality of them in the invisible church we'll talk about in a moment, and also in the local setting, that when this church gathers together and does the will and plan of God, it will be victorious. And to me, it seemed kind of odd that this promise that is given by Christ himself is not a promise that we many times affirm and hold on to. And we're going to learn this morning that it's something that many Christians this morning Find themselves being reluctant to, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but I want to go ahead and read the passage before us I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word and I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can uh, through this for us and, and get us out um, in decent order um, and yet still giving due diligence to the word of God this morning here's what uh, is said in Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 through 19. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you and you can find it on page 822 page. 822. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. shall be loosed in heaven. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would teach your people this morning. Father, I pray by your Spirit you would convict our hearts of wrong thinking, of wrong motives, of wrong ideas, Lord, and that we would hear your Word, we would do what it says, and and, and we would see to it that we apply it in all areas of life. Lord, this is a significant issue that we face it's it's uh, spiritual warfare it's a battle that's going on and so lord i pray that uh, we would see the battle before us we'd identify the enemy and we would begin to embrace not only your spirit this morning but also your church we would embrace the body of believers you've given us to make us victorious in the fight now lord i pray you'd speak through me in a powerful way in christ's name we pray amen you may be seated Well, I don't know when YouTube came into existence, but I remember one of the first YouTube videos that I ever came across was a YouTube video called The Battle at Kruger. And you can write that down. I want to show this uh, video, but it's way too long for the time we have, and it'll give you something to do uh, this afternoon. But the Battle of Kruger is a video that is taken at an African safari refugee. And, uh, and during this safari, we have uh, footage from one of the participants on the safari of a group of water buffalo. And uh, as the water buffalo are being filmed, you begin to watch uh, what happened. Uh, This group of water buffalo are near a watering hole and they're enjoying just uh, a wonderful day on the safari. And, And what you see then is out of this herd of water buffalo, a little baby water buffalo begins to wander away from the fold. And so the people and they've all got Australian and British accents and they're all speaking out cute this water which I don't know why water buffalo they're not very cute but they're talking about how cute this water buffalo is and they're following him as he wanders away from the fold and then there's gasps because what you see come into the camera lens view is a pride of lions. And what you see take place is that pride of lions begins to crouch and begins to prepare themselves to, to uh, pursue this water buffalo. And, and of course, and, and I'm not sure what these people were thinking they were gonna see, but they begin to gasp out loud because then, without any notice, the pride of lions begins to pounce upon this water buffalo. Well, the problem with the water buffalo is much like your He's carrying a little too much weight and he's slower than molasses and the water buffalo uh, is no match for this pride of lions. And they knock this little baby water buffalo down. You hear the the squeals of the water buffalo enduring uh, this pain that's being inflicted upon it. And, and you think it's over. The water buffalo, this little baby one, should have never wandered away from the fold, but he did. He made a terrible mistake, and now he's going to cost him his life. And, and while they are preying upon this water buffalo, something amazing takes place. All of a sudden, in the camera lens view, you see the, the whole herd of water buffalo show up. As if they know one of ours is in trouble. Now, you got to remember, water buffalo have no match against lions, right? Anybody would tell you in the animal kingdom, water buffalo don't stand a chance. But the water buffalo knew that they couldn't do it on their own, and, and I don't know how they did it, but they made it a collective decision, we're gonna go rescue the one who's been caught by the enemy. And this whole herd in the dozens of water buffalo now come and surround the pride of lions, seven or eight lions of, of them at the time, and they surround them, and one by one, the whole herd of water buffalo start knocking the lions out of it. They start winning the battle. And it's a pretty amazing thing thing because one by one, systematically, the lions are set apart. Now remember, the lions are the superior uh, enemy. They've got it. They've, They've got victory in hand. But what they did not know is that when a lesser creature gathers with other lesser creatures for one singular purpose you can't stop them and within a matter of four or five minutes this pride of lions is pushed away from the water buffalo the baby water buffalo is freed and and brought back to the herd and the water buffalo find themselves being victorious now you say tim what in the world does this have to do with your sermon this morning it's a great illustration of our spiritual battle For many of us this morning, we are like that baby water buffalo. We've wandered away from the fold, and the devil has pounced on us. And the Bible uses that kind of language. The devil, your enemy, is a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's prowling around trying to find you, and and he has got his clutches in, in some of us this morning through all kinds of sins and temptations and trials and tribulations. The devil has got our number. But we are reminded by our scripture this morning that God understood and God as our creator recognized that we could not win this battle on our own, that we needed allies. And yes, he gives us the Holy Spirit that resides within us, but he also gives us the church. And yes, we are a lesser creature than the devil. On our own, we don't stand a chance. But I'm here to tell you this morning, we can learn from that video on YouTube, and it's the truth that's recorded in Scripture over and over again. Though we are lesser creatures, when we band together and we covenant together for a singular purpose, there is nothing that can stand in our way. But the problem is this morning, I'm going to have to convince you of that because we live in a society, we live in a culture that says Christianity is all about living it on your own and not with a group of people covenanted together for a singular purpose. So let's look at that this morning. And the first thing we need to understand is we look at this text and are reminded of a promise. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. If you're wanting to win in spiritual, uh, the spiritual warfare, you're going to want to I want to say, I want to be involved with that church because long before Joe Namath's Super Bowl three guarantee, Jesus said, I guarantee you that the church is going to be victorious. So why is it that Christians who have heard their Savior and Lord proclaim that there's victory that can be found in the church? Why aren't we there? Why aren't we experiencing it? Point number one, because many Christians today, many Christians are reluctant to embrace this ally. The first thing that we need to recognize this morning is that is not the understood position of many Christians. Now, why is that? What would cause people not to trust? Or embrace the ally of the church. Now before we get there, let's, let's understand what is the church. When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, we can understand it in one of two ways. First of all, we can understand it as the invisible church. And what we mean by that is the invisible church is the totality of Christians of all time and all places who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. And so uh, the invisible church is all the redeemed. Going back to the times of the scriptures, all the way to today, uh, in America, to the uttermost parts of the world, every single redeemed individual is a part of the invisible church. But we also recognize this morning that the invisible church is made evident, it is made visible by the entity that we call the local church. And so you are a part, if you're a believer this morning, you're a part of the invisible church that has no name, it's the church, but you also are a part of the visible entity of that invisible church, you're a part of Village Bible Church. This morning we prayed for different local visible churches that are uh, meeting right now in our community, but, but there are local visible churches meeting all throughout the world that are a part of the invisible church. And I want to talk this morning <clears throat> about that visible church and your connection to it and how being a part of a local church will keep you protected and will allow you to have victory in spiritual warfare. In our doctrinal statement, we say this about the church. While all believers are a part of the universal church, the New Testament also stresses the importance of all believers being part of a local church. A local church is comprised of a definable group of people. We just talked about it. The local church, a village, is a definable group. We've we've got different little bubble people for each of you to represent you. But what is that definable group of people? Is it just, listen, is it just those who show up? How do we define what that group of people is? The Bible makes it clear that that group of people is brought together on the basis of their commitment to the Lord, It is also those who have identified themselves with and committed themselves to one another. And so to be a part of the church isn't just to show up on Sunday morning. I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is to be a part of a church means, first of all, you identify with Christ. I am a follower of Jesus Christ, okay? But then I also identify with this group of people. When you tell someone, I'm a part of Village Bible Church, you are identifying with a group of people, with a group of leaders, with a group of teachers, that you say, I am with them, And so you're defining who you follow, Jesus Christ. You're also defining who I'm living my Christian life with, the saints of Village Bible Church. We see that all throughout the New Testament. The saints who were meeting in Colossae, the saints who were in Ephesus, the saints who were scattered as Peter had in 1 Peter, all throughout Asia Minor. These definable groups of people who people had bonded themselves to, covenanted themselves, committed themselves to. And the reason why they did it was not to guarantee their salvation. Listen, what you will not hear this morning is that membership in the local church gets you anything. When you get to heaven and Jesus says, okay, why should I let you into my kingdom? I attended Village Bible Church, and, and look, here's my, here's my attendance card. I, I did really good. Keith liked me. Pastor Keith really thought I was a great guy down there. Jesus is gonna say, you know what? I like Pastor Keith, good guy. Eating habits a little off, but, but that's okay. Okay, but, but that ain't getting you into the kingdom. Okay, your membership in a church isn't going to get you into a kingdom. So we say this in our statement, while membership in a church does not guarantee one's salvation, it is imperative that believers be connected to a body of believers for the sake of encouragement, edification, and equipping. Why is being a part of a church a protection in this battle? Because you're going to be encouraged when you're in the church. You're gonna be edified, built up. You're gonna be growing in that and you're gonna be given tools in the area of equipping to be able to say no to sin, to be able to say no to the things of this world and to follow Christ with greater maturity as you're connected to this body. And so the problem this morning is that while we get it up here, okay, yeah, Tim, I get it, it doesn't flesh itself out, and that's one of the reasons why we have to have the conversation we do uh, this morning, is because while we get it up here, we see what the Bible says, many Christians today have an incomplete view or understanding of the role of the church. We see the church, listen, as Christians, we see it as something we can take or leave. Something that is optional, or disposable, but that can't be farther from the truth. The viewpoints and numerous others are given for why people are reluctant. Let's look at each of them very quickly. Number one, one of the reasons why you may be reluctant to this understanding of the church is that you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're new to this whole faith thing. And you were told, um, rightly so, but you've misinterpreted maybe in some ways, that to be a Christian is to be a personal thing. And that's absolutely true. That to be a follower of Jesus Christ is something personally you must do. And and, and what personal means is that your, your mom or dad, they can't make that decision for you. Your brother and sister can't make that decision. But what many new Christians will do is they will take the word a personal relationship with Jesus and and, uh, juxtaposition the word uh, private into that. That my relationship with Jesus isn't just personal, but it's also private. And I will tell you that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that while the relationship with Jesus is personal, it's never private. The New Testament over and over again speaks corporately to the body of believers. The majority of the New Testament is written to churches corporately with most of its imperatives and principles uh, that that it utters are only fully understood when they are uh, understood being lived out in community. The two sacraments or ordinances that we celebrate, we did one this morning of the Lord's Supper, is to be done corporately. You you are not, listen, you are not to go home today in your swimming pool and baptize yourself, right? Right? You know, just kind of fall into the water. I baptize you, Tim, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Cannonball in, okay? Don't do that, okay? That's not a valid baptism. Baptism is to be done with other believers. Communion. Don't go home and say, you know what? I don't need to have communion uh, with the church. I can have it myself. Grab some bread, grab some juice. I can do this in remembrance of me. I'm done. No, if you do that, you're, you're destroying the very essence of the word. The word communion comes from common unity. You can't have common unity by yourself. To have common unity, must be, you must be a part of a community. And so we recognize even the pictures that we are given are given to a collective group of people, not to themselves. Your faith is a personal but not private thing. Notice the next thing, and that is that you may lack Commitment. One of the reasons why the church isn't a big deal for you is that you just lack commitment. And what I mean by that is it's just not a very important thing. And this is a very present danger in local churches today. Tom Rayner, a Southern Baptist missiologist, just this week wrote an article stating that the number one threat to the American evangelical church is the lack of commitment by its people. And I will say that we just heard from Pastor Keith; it's alive and well here at Village. And what was not even a generation ago assumed that Christians would be a part of multiple times of gatherings during the week with other believers. And so you would have Sunday morning service, you would have Sunday school, you would have Sunday evening service, you would have Wednesday night Bible study or prayer times, and then you would have periodic times of fellowship. And what has happened is we continue to reduce the level of of commitment and say, if you could just do this, we we won't do two services on a Sunday, we'll just do one service if you can do that, but but go to Sunday school. Then we've reduced, well, Sunday school isn't working, so do that. And we continue to reduce it down to that people then are at worship service one time a week, but now they're there one time a month. And our lack of commitment continues to go, well, what's causing that? Well, Pastor Keith addressed many of those things we're gone for a whole lot of reasons we live in a post-christian society where where sunday is no longer sacred i lived in a in a generation i guess it's a generation ago i'm getting old but i remember where coaches would tell you public school secular coaches to say no practice on wednesday go to youth group that's gone now they're doing it on Sunday, Wednesday, and every other major holiday because those things are no longer viewed as being important. And so we fill our lives with it. Now, right away you can say, well, Tim, you're being legalistic. Tim, you're, you're, you're bringing judgment uh, where there doesn't need to be. Let me assure you of a couple things. Number one. I am not talking about missing church for various valid reasons. This year, many of you know, I have missed church as your preacher for uh, multiple things. I was with my wife who had medical issues. Well, a couple of weeks ago, my family was on vacation, and being a bivocational pastor, there are times where I am out of the pulpit and away from you because of work, okay? So I'm not bringing any kind of judgment to anybody because if I was, I'd be a hypocrite myself. But I want you to recognize is you should be able to look at each other's lives and say church is a priority. Is church a priority? Is it important? I remember growing up, my parents missed church again for various reasons, but one thing I knew was that church was a priority, not just on Sunday morning, not just to get to a service, but the collective body was an important part of the Badal family's life, and it still is to this day. And so we need to recognize this morning, it isn't about missing church, okay, because in some ways I'm preaching to the choir this morning, right? We're preaching to a group of people who actually showed up to church this morning. But what I'm bringing out is the question of where are your priorities at? The next thing that we need to understand is maybe the reason why you're not uh, on board with church is you have a level of cynicism towards the church. Sadly, the church throughout history has done at times a deplorable job of being the bearer of Christ's church. And as a result of that, people have been hurt. People have been wrong. This church in its history has hurt a lot of people. Uh, I, I know because our elders were finite men, we have no doubt hurt people as we have tried to lead. It's going to happen. And people have real hurts. And it's a terrible testimony to a watching world when the church fails not only its people, but fails its God in living out that mission. This is to which St. Augustine said a very important statement when he said, The church is a whore, but she's still my mother. And so he recognized the church does some pretty deplorable things, but I can't separate myself from her. We're related, we're connected. And some of us have this amazing uh, high level or expectation of what the church is going to do. And, And what we want the church to be is perfect. And here's the thing that I will contend with you this morning. You don't view your marriage that way. Even in the most healthy of marriages, you have an imperfect spouse but you haven't stopped being committed to them. You have imperfect children, and you've not given yourself to stop being committed to them. You, you have an imperfect workplace environment, and you're still there faithfully each and every day doing what the boss has called you to do, and yet when it comes to church, one little issue, one little problem, and, and you say, you know what, I'm giving it up. It's, it's not forming. We need to recognize this morning that our cynicism comes many times more from cultural reasons than it does from biblical ones and we need to be very careful that we don't think that the church has to be perfect and i will tell you if you find a perfect church don't go there because you'll mess it up now some of you will say tim i love jesus i love jesus man i can't get enough of jesus but i can take or leave the church and I've heard that from so many. I've got family members who say, man, love Jesus. I, I, I do my church on TV, and there's great preachers out there I can listen to, uh, but I just don't need to involve myself with the church. Let me tell you what you are saying. You are saying, when you say that, I, I love Jesus but can't, can't take the church, you are saying as if, I love Tim but I can't stand Amanda. You see, the church is the bride of Christ. And when you badmouth the church, you're badmouthing the spouse of Jesus Christ, the church that he is washing with the renewal of his word, the one that he is presenting as blameless and spotless before the Father, this one that he went to the cross to die for. And when we badmouth the church, when we say, I don't need the church, we are saying to a husband, I like you, but I can't stand your wife. Let me remind you this morning that when you gather and you're a part of whether it's this church or another church, and you are frustrated with where the church is at, and you're struggling with where the church is at, and you start to badmouth the church, listen, you're not badmouthing the pastor, you're not badmouthing the elders or the person you don't like in the church. What you are doing is disparaging the name of the bride of Christ. Be very careful when you speak of the church. That doesn't mean the church can't do wrong. That doesn't mean we don't address issues. But be very careful that you don't disparage the very bride that Jesus Christ laid his life down for. Beware that your cynicism for the church isn't a ploy of the devil to keep you from God's blessing, which is the church. So let's. Now we've got the problem. This is a problem. We need to address this problem. How does Jesus address it? Point number two Jesus reveals in the scriptures that he gives the church alone. His authority circle that word alone I know I didn't underline it but that's an important word the church alone has been given a level of authority that no one else has notice in our passage this morning in Matthew 16 verses 13 through 19 Jesus is spending time with the disciples and the question Jesus asks is what are people saying about me Now, Jesus knows the answer. Jesus isn't doing a survey uh, trying to understand the popular opinion uh, of the people about who Jesus was. Jesus wants to get the disciples thinking. Really, the question is, disciples, who do you think that I am? What what are you thinking about me right now? I want you to verbalize that. And and Jesus says, okay, what's the word about me out there? And notice in the text, some say John the Baptist in verse 14, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so the talk is, man, you're something special. You're something important. You're, you're a man uh, given to us by God. That's what, what the prophet's role was in the Old Testament times. And, and they're responding. That's what the going talk is right now. You're a special guy. You're, you're from God, and you're speaking on behalf of God. But then he stops, and he says, but what about you guys? What do you say? And, and Peter, who usually is putting his foot in his mouth, utters this word, and this is, man, this is the high point of Peter's life up to this point. Peter hits it on the head. He says, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're not a prophet. You're not one of the patriarchs. You are the son of God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one who is going to address our greatest need. And, And Jesus turns to Peter and says, man, that didn't come from you, Peter. So if you start a high five and saying, hey, look at me, Peter, God, or Jesus says to Peter, God's revealed this to you. And this truth is the truth of how I'm going to build this new entity. I'm going to build this new organism called the church. Now I want you to notice at this point, Jesus hasn't uttered this word church up to this point. And so when, when Jesus uses what would be the Greek word ekklesia, uh, it is a group of assembled people for a particular reason. So if we were to go to Wrigley Field to watch a ball game, you could use the Greek word ekklesia, what's translated as church, for that group of people. It could be a pagan group of people. It could be a Christian group of people. It was an assembled group of people for a particular purpose. And so this is an ekklesia, and this is this group of assembled people, Jesus says, who, who bring themselves together under this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, is going to do something amazing. This church that I'm going to build, Jesus says, is going to prevail against the gates of hell. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement. And so the disciples are like, okay, so Jesus is going to start this thing. And notice what Jesus says about this church. Place, this group of people. Number one, the church is going to be exalted to a place of authority. Write that down. It's going to be exalted to a place of authority. How does Jesus exalt this entity or this organism called the church? He does so by making it possessive. I will build my church. Not Jeremiah's church, not Elijah's church, not John the Baptist's church, not Tim church, not the elder's church, not the worship leader's church, not your church. The church that Jesus is building is his possession. It's his baby, if you will. It's his relationship. This is mine. Listen, the church is so special that Jesus Christ died for it. The church is so special that Jesus is now interceding on its behalf to the Father in heaven. The the church is so special that when the devil comes and accuses the brethren of their sin, Jesus comes to our aid and to our defense. The church is a special place. Now, as Protestants, we, we begin to say, wait a minute, you're elevating the church to a level that it should not. I am not condoning a, a papacy, having a pope, and, and having a hierarchy of priests that, that keep us from being able to directly involve ourselves with God through the mediator of Jesus Christ. I'm not condoning that. But might I add, as evangelicals, we have swung the pendulum too far that we have made church into a small sea instead of the beautiful, powerful that christ has exalted it to be and because of that we lose in this battle against sin because we make what should be a big c something very very small notice jesus also makes it special because it is the very thing that he is building i will build my church In the book of 1 Peter, Jesus tells us, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter, Peter tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone to this church. He's the foundation, and he is building this stone out of spiritual stones, you and I. He is building a spiritual house that will bring glory and honor to God. A couple years ago, as a church, we built the Family Life Center. We did the most, the majority of it, 85% of it we did ourselves. And there's something awesome about starting a project and seeing it step-by-step come to fruition. And I want you to recognize that right now, where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is overseeing the greatest building project known to man, and it's called the church. And he's building it, and he's enjoying the growth that he's seeing, and he's enjoying seeing stones, if you will, being placed on other stones and building this beautiful place, this beautiful people that will bring his Father glory. And he exalts it. He elevates it. But let's be reminded of something very important. Jesus is building his church, nothing else. Nowhere in Scripture do you see that Jesus is involved in building community centers. He isn't involved in building um, country clubs. He isn't there uh, building uh, para-church organizations. All of those may have their place, but the one thing Jesus is building is his church. And that begs the question this morning, if that's what Jesus is focused in on, if that's what Jesus is geared up uh, to engaging in, then why aren't Christians Why is it that as a pastor I hear over and over again when we are talking about helping build this local church with its ministries and reaching out that the number one thing I hear is I need to check my calendar, we're awful busy. As Christians, as followers of Christ, our number one focus and purpose should be building and being a part of the building project of the church. Because if we are followers of Jesus Christ, wouldn't we want to follow in his footsteps? And Jesus is building this church for his glory. Number two, notice that the church is equipped to be the authority. In verse 19 of our text, uh, Jesus says that he's going to give this church the kingdom, the keys of the kingdom, that whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What, What God says is, I give you my authority on earth That when you say something as a collective body, I'm there with you. Remember, where two or three of you are gathered, I am there. If two or three of you can agree on anything, I am there. That passage is talked about in the context of church discipline, where there's an agreement on something. Jesus says, I am there in a special way with you in an agreement. And so when the church acts as a collective body, it can know that it is acting as the earthly representation of Christ himself. Where do we see this most evident? We see this in the role of church discipline. When the church has an individual, a part of its body, that is living contrary to their own testimony, so they are saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but their life shows a pattern of unrepentant sin the church collectively can gather together and they can say of that individual after uh, hours and after um, times of trying to get this person to repent they are unwilling we can hand that individual and this may sound very harsh but after a period of time we can hand that person over to the devil meaning they are outside of the protection of the church we do not see them as one of the redeemed because a Christian doesn't act that way. The Bible says if you agree on that, then I'm in agreement with you, church. We are the middle managers as a collective body of the church, or of of God, here speaking in one voice on behalf of God. Well, how do we do that? How do a group of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations gather together in one place and accomplish that? The Bible says, "You need leaders, so God calls them elders and pastors, men who are called and affirmed by the people to lead them and guide them in verse uh, i 'm sorry in Hebrews thirteen verse seventeen. This is spoken of these men who keep watch over your souls. The job of your elders and pastors is to watch over your souls, to be those uh, people that are helping to protect you in this spiritual battle. They do so as men, the Bible says, who give an account. So the role of pastors and elders is to teach and to lead those Christians who are in the middle of the fight. Elders are your field commanders in the battle who are accountable to the only one, one and only five-star general, Jesus Christ. So when a church is led well, and it's filled with people who see the role that they play, and place first and foremost Christ as their rock and foundation, that church is gonna change the world. That church will stand strong, even with the most difficult of fiery arrows being tossed at it from hell. Notice one final thing. We gotta exhibit this authority Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That means that the church should be a place filled with believers who have a settled and understood confidence that Jesus Christ has already won the battle. But so many of us are walking around with a loser limp We're like we've lost the war. The Bible says that no matter what happens in culture, no matter what happens in our country, our God is on the throne, and the church should be on the march. We should be on the front line storming the gates of hell. It should give us confidence that when we gather together, we gather together, and and there's this sense that we're victors. That though the battle's been hard this week, we gather together and we sing our hearts out like battle cries to one another. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is the king. And Jesus is our Lord. We gather together and we are reminded that the battle is his and he has already claimed the victory. In Ephesians chapter three, verse 10, Paul says that the church is now the way that God would reveal his manifold wisdom through the church, so that we, uh, as we're being built up, we're evangelizing the world how? We're evangelizing the world right now. Listen, every car that drives by and sees the cars in the parking lot says to themselves, I wonder what those Christians are doing. Why am I not there? When your neighbor sees you get up with your family and and, and get up and, and head to church, they're no doubt asking the question, what are those people doing? So tell them, tell them what what has been the single greatest outreach for for my lost family. When we gather together at family gatherings, they will say, boy, you spend a lot of time at church. And we'll say, man, we love it. We have the greatest relationships. Man, uh, where would we have been in Amanda's cancer without our church family around? And our unsaved family and friends say, Wow. That's pretty amazing. It doesn't mean they may buy into it, but we evangelize by telling of the good things that are going on within our community. I don't know where I'd be without my small group. I don't know where I would be without those lovely brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, the church is God's advertising and marketing plan to save man from their sin. Involve yourself in the church a place that that loves people and cares for people and ministers to people and proclaims the gospel to far off lands. Uh, One of the things that one of my employees at the catering company was blown away with in the van, I had an annual report and, and the young man, his name was Jonathan, he said, You know, I, I don't like the church that are all about money and they're just, just filling up money for their pastors and, and for their church. And, and he was looking at our, our annual report and he was looking at our budget. And he said, Wait a minute, you, you have a lot of money going towards missions. What missions organizations do you have? And I showed him on the page where all the missions organizations, he says, That money doesn't stay with you. I said, No, we give that money away. He says, Who knew? I thought the church has just kept it. I thought the pastors drove nice cars. They said, look at me, dude. What are you talking about? I'm driving a catering van. And he was blown away that the church would be willing to send thousands of dollars to far-off places so that people we've never met before may hear the good news of Jesus Christ, might have a meal, might be able to have clothes on their back. I will tell you, when the church does its job, it is the greatest evangelistic tool that the world will ever see. And so we need to advertise that and we need to do a good job in in showing that because the world sees a lot of dirt, right? The news cameras won't talk about that but they'll talk about sex abuses and they'll talk about pastors who have fallen from grace and, and all of the garbage that no doubt comes when you deal with a church full of sinful people. But what Village Bible Church needs to be a part of is Sugar Grove should be able to say we are blessed as a community because that church is there. We don't know where we would be without them, And if we're not doing that, then we're failing in our ministry. So how do we get there? We gotta look at the church in, in one of two ways. Right now, many of us look at church like it's a community center, filled with mini- uh, opportunities and full of programs and we pick and choose, like uh, every, every couple months our, our local park district sends out a flyer. There's Zumba classes, there's pottery classes. Man, join this, join that. And, and, and you'll inevitably say, well, I like that. that. Amanda says, Tim, you should go do Zumba. And I say, Amanda, you should go do pottery. And we don't, neither of us do anything. And, and yet, that's how many of us view church that it's this community center with this a la carte offering of, of ministries and we say, what makes me feel good? That's the American view of church. Let me tell you what the biblical view of church is. The church is a military base. It's a military base where there's security and reprieve from the combat. It's a military base where soldiers are fed and filled up with the rations and ammunition they need for the battle. It is where the wounded soldiers get medical care. It is where the generals announce the strategy of where the army is going to go. Listen to me, when we see the church that way, the church will not have to be reprimanded for not showing up week in and week out. Do you understand what I'm saying? But if you view it as a program, as a list of things that might work for you, then when it it, it does entice you, you'll be there. And when it doesn't, you won't. Brothers and sisters, the Bible says the church is this military installation that is called to storm the gates of hell. How do you view the church this morning? One writer put it this way. In American churches today, there are far too many cruise ships and not enough battleships. Think about that this week. Think about that in our approach to ministry. Well, how do we make it a battleship? The Bible reminds us, and I'll close, and I know we're gone over here, but the Bible reminds us of the church's activity. Uh, I'm gonna give you as an assignment the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Write that down, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. And I'm gonna ask you, to do some evaluating this week, and I'm gonna close here in, in five minutes, so stick with me, and it'll be a true five minutes, I promise. What should a church be a part of? In that passage, I want you to look and see some of the things that should take place. In verse 19, we are called to share our salvation with others. We have been brought into the Holy of Holies through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We should be announcing that, not only to one another as Christians, reminding uh, each other of the grace that God has given each of us, but also proclaiming that to our neighbors and friends and coworkers. We need to write this down. It's not in your outline. I'm gonna add it. We need to be open about our sin, in verse 20 it talks us to to approach the the um the throne with true hearts. The idea here is not divided loyalties, but that we're honest about where we're at. And so we come in and, and here's the problem. If you're a military base and you come in back from the battle, and you've been shot a couple times, and you're out of your water in your canteen, and you, you're, you're dead tired. You don't walk into the military base, and, and, and the guy first greeting you says, hey, how are you doing? And your response is, I'm fine, how are you? No, you say, I've been shot up. I got no food, we haven't slept for two days straight. I'm exhausted, and the church doesn't have enough of those conversations going on, would you agree? I'm fine. You're fine. We're all fine, and little do we know our marriages are falling apart. Our kids are running away from the Lord. Our money is totally out, and and we're falling to every sin that last week we said we weren't going to fall to. And and someone comes up and says, "How you doing?" I'm doing fine. My life is is a wreck. And we need to, as brothers and sisters in Christ, confess our sins one to another. We come into this place. How you doing? You know, it's been a tough week. I promised myself and I promised God I wasn't going to fall to that sin, and I did every day this week. I said I wasn't going to do this, and this happened. I got to tell you, some the devil's beating me up this week. I don't know how to deal with my wife's medical report. I don't know how to deal with my kid who's rebelling from the Lord. I, I don't know what to do. H- how are you doing? If we were really honest about it, quite frankly, the devil wouldn't be beating us up as much as he is. But the devil's got us figured out. He says, if I can get you to think that you're the only one dealing with it, you'll keep your mouth shut. And so you're dying inside, and you go and you say, I don't get it. I don't know why the church isn't doing anything for me. The reason why the church isn't doing anything for you is not because of the church, it's because of us. We're not being honest. We're not utilizing The full measure that God has given. We gotta be open about sin. We gotta stand together against wavering. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. There are some of you this morning who are walking away from the truth and you don't even know it. And you need encouragement. You need people to come alongside you and say keep fighting the good fight. Don't give it up. But Tim, you don't know what it's like to be a Christian in my workplace. Brother, the fight has already been won. Fight the good fight. You don't know what it's like to be in a school that that, that doesn't trust Jesus. I, I get it. Let's continue to do it. Let's see what God will do. While true believers are saved from the beginning to the end, many of us are struggling to persevere. And we need God's help, and we need his encouragement. And when you're tempted to give up, and you don't think the gospel's worth it, you need other believers to remind you that you and I are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We need one another to stir one another up towards love and good deeds. Let us consider how to stir one another up, the scripture says, towards love and good deeds. Being a part of a church means people are going to get in your face. People are going to ask, What are you doing for the Lord? How are you living? And you shouldn't receive that with anger in your heart. You should receive that with joy. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me and said, Tim. There's an area in your life that you need to fix and I am thankful, I am thankful because I know that, that the sinful Tim can deceive himself from seeing it and I need brothers and sisters to come and, and speak the truth to me and, and have the humility to listen. We need to help one another and do these things in love. So don't cow prod people but build them up towards with love. And finally, and Keith's talked about this, it means showing up even when it's hard some people in the book of hebrews were given up on going to church not because of hobbies not because of vacations but because in the world they were living in they were being persecuted we don't have that excuse yet but it's coming you see the church reminds me of something i remember as a little kid my grandparents took me to the circus and i remember i was amazed when i saw the giant beasts of elephants they were stronger than 100 men combined. And I remember asking my grandfather once, doesn't the elephant know that he's strong? And my grandfather said, what are you talking about? And I said, the only thing that's holding that elephant is that rope around its leg, and it's tied to that stake. And that stake's pretty big, but, but it's no match for an elephant. Why doesn't anybody tell the elephant he could be free if he just lifted up his leg and pulled the stake out of the ground? You see, from, from a very young age, the elephant was told that that stake in the ground was bigger than him. And the church has fallen for that lie as well. You see, the devil has told the church that it can't do anything, that it can't change lives, that it can't change the community of Sugar Grove. It can't change a workplace. It can't change um, a community. And we've been told this, and we're falling for this lie that this little peg in the ground is keeping the church from it. And I want to remind the elephants in this room that God has built his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Nothing can stand in our way when we stand behind Christ and do what he says. So let's be the church God's called us to be. Let's get on the offensive and fight the gates of hell, knowing that in Christ we have the victory. Let's pray. Father God, there's been much said. And Lord, I know that with with many words Um, careless words can come out. So, Lord, I pray that you have minimized my careless words and elevated the words of truth. Father, I pray that we would do some evaluating today, not looking to the people around us, but looking at our own lives and asking the question, how much are we embracing this great gift called the church in our fight in this warfare that we are facing? Lord, I pray that we would embrace this knowing that it's not perfect, knowing it's filled with sinful and broken people, but it is your provision, it is your gift to your children so that we might find victory in this war. Lord, I pray for our elders. I pray for our leaders that they would lead us well, that they would guide. Lord, empower them and and equip them and, and show them the way that this church ought to go. Lord, I pray for a group of people who will trust and and submit to that leading, who will hear in in their leading the voice of God. Lord, I pray for humble hearts, humble leaders and humble followers who will seek to honor you in the place where you have them. Lord, I pray that this would all take place so that we might equip and, and, and edify this body of believers. But even more than that, Lord, that because we are faithful to your calling, we might evangelize the community around us. Lord, we need your Spirit's help. We need his leading and his filling, so I pray you'll fill your people anew today so that we might be ready for the battle that we are going to face in the days to come. Now, Lord, send us forth in real fellowship, in honest fellowship, that we may help one another and bear with one another our burdens so that we may know we're not alone in the fight. Dismiss us now in your peace and your love and your protection, we pray. In Christ's matchless name, amen.